what fast fashion did was that they don't really kind of carry the same skis all the time, right? That that's part of the fast fashion. Like they, they follow trends. They don't launch with a lot of stock. If you would like resources and links and other help to do with today's episode, just go to amazingfba.com forward slash 461. Hey folks, welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. Today we are talking to Daiyu Yang from Ecom Ops. Ecom Ops basically does a very simple thing. They fulfill orders for FBM Amazon sellers or indeed any e-commerce sellers of your direct to consumer, same thing. And they will fulfill from a Chinese supply, it's sort of fulfillment center, pretty much anywhere in the world, certainly Europe or, or um, North America. And of course, UK is included in Europe. Um, what we're talking about uh, in this episode, I think is particularly interesting if you have a, a more strategic kind of brain and you want to engineer a business that is really mindfully put together. So we're going to talk about entrepreneurship and really how um, how profound your supply chain strategy is when it comes to your overall business strategy and and how to you know learn from some of the examples of Shane Brand and, and fast fashion brands like Zara. So let's get into it. Hope you really enjoy this as much as I enjoy talking about it. And um, see you at the other end of the show. I really, you know, let's just come back to the point you made, which is so important. You should never, ever believe your own hype. If you've made the most startling, amazing AI-driven prediction model of inventory prediction in the world, and many people have created them, and I work with friends at the Eva.guru who've done a great job, and you've got 25, 30, 40 years experience, you're still going to get it wrong. So the fact that you don't have to be right, that you can flex, is critical in a time of economic choppiness where demand may be falling off a cliff in, in you know, American consumer demand. There's a question marks about it at the moment as we're recording in, in late April, 2023. I think that's again, so critical. People have a habit, I think, I know if you see this as well, Dave, but of, of making a plan to maximize profit obsessively and grow mm. more. It, that's really like, that's like the A star people. Everyone else is just trying to maximize revenue growth, which I just mm -hmm. think is silly, frankly, but, and, and they just forget about like, risk management and that doesn't sound yeah. very sexy but like we don't know the future and, and acknowledging that truth is wise right so how how else does this sort of tie in again give us some examples of, of how you actually see your better clients the, the better run businesses using this and how it works in reality yeah yeah sure and actually you have a really good point around not just thinking about how do you maximize your revenue or kind of projecting that as well so look entrepreneurship the why are we entrepreneurs? Because we want to have, we want to have upside, right? Versus just, you know, a, a job where you get a, a fixed salary, right? Now, what a lot of people get wrong, I think about like entrepreneurship is that it's not just about maximizing upside. It's about maximizing risk adjusted upside. So that's where you brought in risk management. You know, that is a very important piece of it. Risk adjusted upside. Now, if everyone lived forever, we could just take like, you know, the, the home run swing, like every single time. And at some point we'll make it, but no one lives forever, right? So we have to be aware that every shot that we take, we have to have that, that downside protection as well. You know, managing that, like we're not putting all of our life savings on one shot and, you know, hopefully that's going to get somewhere, right? So and I'll give you kind of a perfect example of, 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 so we have a client. They, they are an agency that works with uh, influencers to develop products for them and help launch products for them. Now, traditionally, the model is that they would have to, you know, work with the influencer and, and they're at risk. 
as well, by the way, you know, so they like, they do a profit share model. So they have the risk of the inventory itself. Traditionally, they have to have, you know, produce a couple thousand units at least and, you know, send that to their U.S. warehouse. And then that takes a few months, right? So there's that inventory risk. And also it takes longer to launch as well. When they started working with us, they, they, they were working with this influencer that they, they, they really thought could be massive, right? So, um, they, they developed this product. However, because they could just launch right away and quickly and low risk, as opposed to, so they were initially planning for actually, you know, 10 or 20,000 units. But what they did was they, they just made a first batch of 1,000 and they had the influencer shout out on their Instagram or, you know, Twitter, whatever it was. And that 1,000 units sold out within like two minutes. Okay. So obviously massive, massive interest and demand. And they were able to do that like literally three months before, like they would have been able to get anything out. Like they were shipping to their U.S. location, for example. And because of that massive demand, they decided to, okay, the original plan was 20,000 units. Let's go for 60,000 units. And they produced that. And that 60,000 units sold out within 20 minutes. And all of this happened before any goods would have made it to the U.S. in the first place if they used the traditional model, right? So, yeah. and, and it's like, you know, the perfect example of both agility, they were able to launch much faster. And now, obviously, once they made the 60,000 units, that was a lot more risk, right? But that was after it was validated, right? So technically speaking, their initial risk was only 1,000 units as opposed to 20,000 units, right? And, and that, that, that's a huge difference to be able to take that small risk first to validate the upside and then be able to take the advantage of that upside even in a bigger way than you would have had if you didn't have that initial testing in the first place. I, I love your way of thinking. We're getting so much value from this, at least I am, and I, I hope my listeners, because this is integrating kind of supply chain management and not just treating it like a logistical problem to solve, but understanding how it feeds into overall business model, balance sheet model, uh, management, risk management. That, that's sophisticated entrepreneurship right there, relative to what most of us try and do. I love it. So two thoughts, one very simple point. Three months on Amazon is an eternity. Like if you see an opportunity and you wait three months before you sell the first units, we've all done this. Like I've seen this, you must have seen this. Your clients will have seen this for sure. I'd put good money on it. You go back after three months and your first bit of inventory ships in and the market has changed and somebody else has grabbed the market opportunity. Mm -hmm. They're established. They've got the reviews. They've got the ranking. They've got a good market share. And they're talking Boston Consulting Group Matrix. They have now become a star business that has three times more market share than anybody else within three months. And you've missed the opportunity. That's how brutal it can be, right? So moving quickly can be really, really critical in my experience. And we all know that. I was going to say something else and I can't think it. Yes. And the, also, the other thing is just to reference, I can't remember who it is. I must look it up because I'm always referencing. There's one of the guys who was a Y Combinator founder or, or CEO said there's before product market fit and there's after. And they're so different that mm -hmm. I think the, the, the massive crushing downside of the private label or custom product model, particularly if you import from China, is this, that you're going to put a load of money down before you know the product is going to sell, but before you know if the market's actually going to buy it in any reasonable amount or not. But what those guys had is extremely clear data, albeit on a small scale, that this thing was going to sell super quickly. And so I think the risk that they made by ordering 60,000 units was way lower than ordering 10,000 in an abstract, in my opinion. Yeah. I yeah. think that's so smart. I love it. 
Yeah, and actually, you know what? I'm going to give you an example that many listeners should probably be uh, should should know is Shein. Okay, S H E I N. Now Shein is uh, at one point they were valued at 100 billion dollars. Now I think a little bit less. You know, like 70 billion dollars, which is not bad at all, right? So what what Shein did was they completely overtook the fast fashion industry. So fast fashion has an H and M or Zara and the like. And actually, you know, back in business school, I actually, we actually did a lot of case studies on Zara at the time because Zara at the time, they were actually one of the ones that overturned the entire fashion industry with fast fashion in general. So first let's talk about fast fashion. You know, like what is fast fashion? So one of the biggest issues in retail and is extremely a huge issue in fashion is just having to hold a lot of stock and, and, and also potentially having overstock. Actually, in fashion, it's a huge problem, right? Like you have to predict every season what you're going to launch and, and what, you, what you're going to produce. And a lot of times, like, I'm, that's why you always have sales, you know, like stores, because like a lot of SKUs just don't sell very well. And, and some SKUs sell out. What fast fashion did was that they don't really kind of carry the same SKUs all the time, right? That that's part of the fast fashion. Like they, they follow trends. They don't launch with a lot of stock, right? And they're always changing and it actually kind of like Zara, for example, actually creates this model where their customers like the fact that nothing is ever the same, right? Because they're always just getting more stuff. Now, Shein supercharged that model because what they do is they ship from China. Most of their orders, they ship from China. And, and actually, they use the exact same lines that our clients use, actually. And what they do, even though they're like a hundred billion dollar company, is that when they launch certain SKUs, they start with like a couple hundred units. I mean, a hundred billion dollar company starting a launch with a couple hundred units. And the reason why they do that is because their factories are so close to their fulfillment center. And they're able just to very quickly, you know, get a small batch. And I mean, their clothing is very cheap. It costs like a dollar each in terms of cogs, right? So like, think about it, a massive company with a couple hundred dollars risk you know, every single SKU launch. If it doesn't do well, they just move on, right? There's constantly launching stuff. If it does well, then they just massively scale. And that's yeah. why they can overtake, you know, these massive businesses. Like, and, and unfortunately, I think H&M and Zara might, might really suffer. They're suffering already, but might suffer in the coming years because of Sheen being able to take advantage of this model and access that agility and flexibility. I love it. And, and I just think, uh, I, I don't care if, if anyone listening decides to stop selling on Amazon would be a bit odd, but if for whatever reason, or go into a different industry or never fulfills direct from China, I, I'd love the big picture business lessons here, because I think it's very dangerous that there's a danger people say, Sheen is a hundred billion dollar valuation company or 30 billion a year company, however you size it, it's huge. Mm -hmm. And, oh, well, of course they can do that sort of stuff. I would flip that on its head and say, the reason they've grown so quickly is because they, they are managing risk and capital requirements so mm -hmm. smartly. I mean, they basically have set things up such that the model they're running, this consumer expectation makes a virtue of tiny amounts of inventory. So that automatically reduces their inventory risk and the capital requirement, which is super mm -hmm. smart. And then what they've done is they've just put it on steroids. So in other words, my understanding of the business model is they test stuff at tiny risk. So they yeah. waste money on stuff that doesn't work. And then they scale incredibly fast but they're only tying up as much money as they need and, and no more, which means, you know, they say growth sucks cash, but the amount of cash per product line is 200 units as opposed to 20,000, which is not uncommon, even for quite small businesses yeah. I work with, then the amount of cash needed is tiny. So the growth therefore can be exponential as opposed to if you're having to put 500,000 
dollar loan in just to kind of grow the next set of products, which I've seen clients do all the time, yeah. then your growth is going to be, you know, maybe you grow a hundred percent a year, which is great. But if someone's growing a thousand percent a year, they're going to kill you. So and this is, this is, there's so many smart business thinking, so much smart business thinking behind the simple seeming thing of let's fulfill from China. I, I mean, this is very interesting indeed. Look, yeah. it, it, this is so amazing. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that, okay, consumers don't necessarily want to wait. And that's, you know, always going to be a certain limitation. You can blend it. You can do a hybrid of FBA and FBM. That seems to be mm -hmm. super smart. But presumably there must be some other downsides as well that we need to, to look out of this. Because obviously you, your clothes are coming a long way. They're coming from a place that's a bit famous for, if I may say so, slightly variable quality, some of the best mm -hmm. products. Some of the worst products are all made in China, right? So mm -hmm. what are the downsides and how do we manage them? Yeah, I mean, hey, look, you know, so on the quality side, right? So the quality side, assuming that you actually control your factories or work with your factories and you care about your product quality, that doesn't actually matter whether you're shipping from China or shipping from the U.S., right? It's the same product, right? So now I, I, I would really emphasize that, see it as more of a fulfillment option as opposed to like, don't drop ship, right? You know, drop shipping is where kind of the quality issue comes along, right? But if you're an FBA seller, obviously you're not dropshipping anyways, right? So, this, so, so, so the quality element is going to be the same either way. Now, on the quality side, actually, I would even say that there is a huge benefit from China because of the shorter lead times and the small, much smaller batches that you can actually plan for, you can iterate much faster. You can catch quality issues much faster, right? Which means that like, as opposed to, you know, ordering... 5,000 units and realizing, oh, shoot, like they're all bad. So I got to figure it out after the next PO. You do 500 units at a time. You figure out quality issues after 500 orders. And then the next order, you start fixing it, start iterating on much faster as well. Or, you know, for the 5,000 batch, you already addressed the quality issues already, right? Well, I just want to plug one other thing up about that, which is really important, which is handle your competition. If you come up with something successful, the other thing apart from Amazon, there's an opportunity for three months and then it's filled. The other thing is if you run a successful product, then, you know, and again, no offense to China, but this is just a reality we've all experienced that, that is going to get copied very, very mm -hmm. quickly. I mean, not even three months, it might be three weeks if you're unlucky, but therefore you have to iterate and improve, right? So not yeah. only the quality control, you find the mechanical problems, like the dresses are ripping or the, the, the fabric isn't strong or the boxes aren't protecting that or whatever it is, or the myriad hernia and details. Like if, if you hate accounting, then like I, all that logistic stuff just, just leaves me cold. None of us love it. Let's face it. But then there's also, and you can go, people are loving these pink dresses. Why don't we do a bunch of like a whole range in just the shocking pink or I, I have no idea about fashion, but whatever it is, you can iterate, iterate. And I think that's so important in terms of staying ahead of the consumer, the, the competition rather. So I just want to flag that up as well. I mean, anything that speeds up feedback loops generally yes. is in favor, right? As long as they're positive feedback loops, not everyone hates yeah. the product and gives it a one-star review. That's never yeah, good. yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and actually the traditional model, right? You know, typically products, they go through like one year, two year improvement cycles, right? We have clients who literally change the product 10 times in a year, right? So like that, that, that really accelerates the velocity that you can actually do things. Now, if you're changing 10 times a year, there might be kind of some issues that you're fixing, obviously, right? So you, that's not necessarily the goal, but having that ability is really important, right? And then going back to kind of the previous discussion point about, okay, you know, what are some things you should be aware of with China fulfillment? 
is the other thing is that there are a lot of different options to ship from China. A lot of different courier lines, a lot of different you know freight lines as well. Now, one big watch out is that you have to use the right shipping lines. There are lines out there that are going to be super, super cheap, and they are untracked. For example, they they might take a week, they might take you know four weeks, right? And it could be highly inconsistent, but they're a little bit cheaper, right? So now, obviously, in terms of like how you think about your costs. Technically, you want as cheap as reasonable, right? But if the reasonable part, that is really important, right? You want to find the right balance between the value. Well, this is really anything, right? The value and the cost. Now, particularly important for Amazon, even if it's FPM, if you use cheap lines that are inconsistent, well, your score is going to get dinged. I mean, your account is going to have issues, right? Now, the good thing, though, is that, you know, some of the more reliable lines, they are actually Amazon recognized lines. So the... The top line that we normally use is called Yun Express. So Y-U-N Express. That is actually what Shein uses. So Shein is actually Yun Express's top client. And, you know, we're actually one of their top 10 clients. That is what we do believe, at least currently, what the top line is. Now, the industry is always evolving. There's going to be new lines coming in. And, you know, potentially Yun Express is not going to be the best option in the future. So part of what you want to do is obviously do your homework. But it's, a, it's really important for you to also work with the right fulfillment center who actually understands, you know, what the right lines are using, not just offering. Like we, we don't even offer our, our, our clients a cheap options because we know from experience that it just doesn't work. If you're sending something to your grandmother and you say it might take three weeks, that's fine, right? But as a e-commerce brand, like no one is going to be able to, be able to, to grow a business or even maintain a business from not imploding if they have shipping options that take three weeks sometimes. Right. Also, it depends on your grandmother. I mean, if your grandmother's used to <laughs> Amazon, they'll have been trained to put next day delivery. So, yeah. Uh, yeah I would just say as well, I think, again, just to hammer this point home, I mean, anyone who's been around the block for a while knows this, but I just, if you're new to Amazon or, you know, I know we've got some very experienced clients who actually have anything from manufacturing to decade, you know, decades or even generations of retail experience, but new to Amazon, trust me that you never, ever, ever want to annoy the Amazon gods by not delivering on your fulfillment promises because you will get your the ODR, the order defect rate will be above the sacred 4% and the entire Amazon account could be frozen. Meaning mm-hmm. if any stock you have got at FBA, you will not be able to get it. Any money they owe you, you will not be able to get it. Any stock you want to sell to Am- on Amazon, you won't be selling it. And that is very, very, very ugly. So it's exceptionally important to have very consistent standards. So, so I would 100% endorse what you're saying. If you're off Amazon, Mine, I'm not so familiar with the DTC world. Plenty of people I know do it. I haven't done it myself. But you maybe can afford a little bit more cheap and cheerful or cheap and variable. I, I would suggest you're going to produce a pretty crap quality brand experience that way, but you won't yeah. die. If you do it on Amazon, they'll just kill your business. And you know that's just the risk you have there. So I just wanted to flag up for anyone who hasn't experienced that. Trust me, you, you don't want that email. It's a, it's a bad day. Yeah. Anyway, so... <laughs> The consistency is very important, obviously. And tell us a bit more about how this process works then. So if I'm going to get, you know, some freight done cheaply and, and, and easily to an FBA center, but not to a consumer, I'd just use DHL or somebody like that, right? So mm-hmm. I guess that's not quite how it works. So tell us more about what the mechanics are. Yeah. So if your factory is in China, and by the way, this model really only works if your factory is in China. If you're producing stuff in the UK, don't ship it back to China to ship again to the UK. So if your factory is in China, 
Actually, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot about in the Western world is that there's a big opportunity for Uber for freight trucking. Uber for freight trucking already exists in China, by the way. And it's not Uber, by the way. It's, 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 it's a Chinese app. A factory can literally pull up an app. They call like the, the, the correct truck size, like within a few hours and then just, you know, send your freight off. And it's extremely cheap. It's so cheap. And it depends on the product, obviously, and the weight and, 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 you know, dimensions, everything like that is so cheap that a lot of times, I say the majority of times, our clients, when they send freight to us, the, the, the factory just sends it for free where they don't add a cost to it because the alternative is that they got to send it to a port anyways. Right. So a lot of times they just include it in the cost because it's such a small, insignificant portion of the overall cogs. Even if they don't include it, the point is that it's, it's, it's very trivial compared to you know, organizing freight to the U.S., for example. And yeah, you know, so there's actually no comp, like, it's so easy, actually. Just tell your factory, okay, let, I want to send some goods to this Shenzhen or wherever location. And they'll tell you how much it is, what they'll say is for free, and that's it. There's really nothing complicated about it. And actually, as a matter of fact, our receiving process is actually much more efficient than, well, particularly FBA. I mean, FBA is also kind of a black box sometimes. You don't know what's happening. But <laughs> compared to a local fulfillment center, we can be so much more efficient because the t- typical 3PL receiving model is that they're not going to really talk to anyone else, like, you know, kind of like along the supply chain, right? They're going to talk to your freight forwarder, right? But typically they get a date and they receive it and hopefully they receive it sometime and, and it, they might take a couple of days to process it, right? What we can do, we have a Chinese team. We have a frac- we have factory relations team. Like we just call up the factory. They call us up. Hey. You know, we're going to send it tomorrow. Okay, we're going to receive it tomorrow at this time. And because of that, we can actually, typically on average, we, we, we receive, replenish, and process new inventory within a business day, within hours, really, actually, you know, as it comes, because we have that ongoing communications with the factory, and it's so much more efficient that way. So yeah, you know, I, I had to say, it's going to be even easier than, than, than you working with any kind of uh, local fulfillment center, and probably particularly FBA. FDA can be very stringent in some of the receiving requirements. Oh, absolutely. And if you send stuff in wrongly labeled or whatever, then get them to do a bin check. If you would like resources and links and other help to do with today's episode, just go to amazingfba.com forward slash 461. And they won't even start to do bin check for a month. And and then they'll discover that what you thought was a pink thing is actually, you know, all customers are ordering a pink widget and they're getting a blue one and absolutely hating it and possibly giving you one star reviews. And Amazon will take a month to change that, which means you've got to shut the listings down. And once things go wrong with an FBA, you have very little control. And just because one side of Amazon screwing up, the FBA side, doesn't mean the other side of Amazon, like the, the people who are judging order defect rates and f- negative feedback and stuff, isn't trashing your account's health score. So that's an ugly situation. And we've all been there again. So having control over that actually is worth a lot just for peace of mind. And, and like a variability is, is present within Amazon as well. <laughs> the sort of thing yeah. I said is just like just tip of the iceberg. And anyone who's done FBA for a while knows when yep. FBA works, it's amazing. And when it goes wrong, it's horrific. And there's not much in between. Whereas this is a lot safer. What I would say as well is, is that as, as a Westerner who doesn't, and like I know that we met in, in London, obviously you, you, you know, got contacts in China and you live in the US. So you are very sort of multicultural. I don't speak Chinese. I don't speak, I don't understand the Mandarin or Cantonese or any other Chinese languages. And I don't really understand the culture well. I've dealt enough with 
Chinese factories to know that some things work better than others. But when you've got a Chinese factory owner or an agent talking to a, a fulfillment center in China, probably in the same city or the same region or province, speaking the same language in the same business culture, again, there's a smoothness, there's an ease, there's an efficiency about that that removes a lot of complication, which I think, again, makes so much sense, doesn't it, in terms of logistics and and operations, get people to speak the same language, same culture to do stuff. And it's easy. Start trying to get a Chinese freight forwarder to speak to an American fulfillment center in yeah. British. Then you've got three different cultures uh, that don't necessarily have the same expectations. And, you know, it gets ugly quickly, right? So I've seen that as well. So in, in a strange way, this is a much simplifying process, isn't it? Compared to other things by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. And it's one of the bigger reasons why, like we come up. And I myself specifically target Western brands. Because first mm. of all, like I think Chinese brands, it's kind of a solved problem. They know this exists. They've known this exists for the last 10 years, right? Right. Yeah, and, and what I'm trying to do is just, you know, give Western brands the ability to access this as well. And as you probably can see, I speak English quite well. I actually grew up in San Francisco. So. Yeah, I imagine you did from the <laughs> accent. Yeah, West Coast. Yeah, so, you know, I, I'm actually more American than Chinese, right? But I am very much bicultural. So... You know, one point that, that you really hit is very important. I'm sure a lot of our audience who work with Chinese factories know this is that there is, it's not just communication, not just language. There's a massive cultural difference in how, oh, yeah. how Chinese businesses and Western businesses deal with just business in general. So, you know, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, kind of e-com ops plays a really different, like a unique role in this space as well is. Fulfillment is not that complicated. You need space and, and people. Really, that's it. You know, I can teach you how to, well, actually, maybe it might be fulfilled orders yourself before. I'm not sure exactly, but it's not that complicated. But, you know, the value that we play is to, you know, bridge that gap to, you know, most of our clients, they just put complete trust in us to kind of manage that process so that we, our team, and we do have a Chinese team as well to communicate with the factory so that, you know, and it's more efficient for everyone, by the way. You know, many times, like if a client tries to get too involved with the process, especially when they don't know the cultural differences that actually causes more issues than if we just actually communicate with their factories directly anyways. I mean, it's interesting you say fulfillment's not complex. I guess to somebody who's very used to a certain industry, it seems easy. I mean, I would say me going to the post office locally to, you know, to, to post or mail, as you would say in the States, a, a single parcel for a single order to a single client is very easy. How you do that at scale efficiently and cost-effectively and, and consistently I would argue it's quite complex yeah, and yeah. I'm very glad to hand that off to somebody else. I mean, I have to say that it's one of those things that your common sense would kind of say is simple and yet your common sense would also, if you really think about it, say is actually complex to scale, but also bitter experience would tell you it's easy to screw it up because it happens a lot. I mean, the yep. Royal Mail has been delivering posts in Britain for longer than the United States has been a country, yep. but they still yep. don't get it right. About 1% defect rate, which is pretty terrible considering they've had you know, more about three centuries of experience. So it yep. can't be that simple. Otherwise, they'd be getting it right, I guess. Yeah, 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 no, no, for sure. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of, it, it might be obvious that the reason why as well is because fulfillment is capacity constrained, right? You can't scale up fulfillment the same way you can scale up marketing, right? If, if your ads are profitable, just scale it up, you know, within the day, right? With fulfillment, you literally have physical constraints. Like you can run out of space, you can run out of people, right? You can, uh, you know, mess up along the lines, right? So, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, we're very, I mean, this is also where my, my, 
my my former experience with consulting at the Boston Consulting Group kind of really came in in terms of just maximizing that process flow. And look, you know, like if you're literally in your own, if you have one product and you're in your your garage shipping it out, maybe it's not that complicated, right? You're not going to like it, by the way. Like, you know, no one who fulfills their orders like really wants oh, to no. continue fulfilling their orders. Oh, no, I hate uh, that. But also, it's like, it, as you said, it's, it's absolutely not scalable. That That is even yeah, less exactly. scalable than anything you're talking about. I mean, it's capacity constrained. You've got one person, you've got one space. Yeah. And if you make some mistakes or you, I don't know, fall over and, and you know, stub your toe or, or, or you've got a couple of days off or your wife's sick or your children are sick or you, I don't know what, you argue with your wife, any of those things get in the way and then the system comes crashing down because it's kind of just you and <laughs> that's terrible so i'd agree i mean like the last thing i think most people should be doing is doing their own fulfillment for any longer than they have to just because it's yep. so unscalable and also you're I, I don't know i mean some people really like to be involved in fulfillment and and warehousing operations of their business and i kind of admire it up to a point because yeah. i'm not willing to get my hands dirty in the same way but i also feel like they are probably therefore the biggest constraint in their business not just in terms of not spending time managing and growing it, but because they are literally the biggest constraint in one of yeah. the critical parts of the business and fulfillment. That's like doubly bad, you know? So I think finding trusted partners in fulfillment is is like the area of the business where it's the least DIY friendly in my experience. So would you say oh, that's true or? Yeah. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And I think that, well, I, I'm also going to kind of bring it up a level as well, is that so not just fulfillment, but generally speaking, the entire supply chain. Look, if you are a massive company, I mean, it makes sense for you to have like a supply chain division in your own warehouse. Like that, that does make sense, right? But, and hopefully you'll get there, right? But, but there's that huge in between before you get there, where it certainly makes sense to use a partner, sourcing agents, fulfillment centers, et cetera, et cetera. Now, one thing to, to, to really note though, is that, and, and you mentioned this earlier, I want to make a point here is that the supply chain, not just the logistics, the entire supply chain, you want to be careful not to just see it as a cost center. And, and, and I think a lot of folks like get into that danger of considering a cost center, trying to reduce costs as much as possible, right? Or even worse, think he's an afterthought, right? As your business grows, like when you actually hit that product market fit, as you're scaling up into a real business, the supply chain should literally be probably half your business, right? I mean, you know, it's not a precise math, obviously, right? But marketing sales that gets that demand and, you know, it makes, generates a revenue, right? But if you don't have a supply chain strategy, then it's just going to hold back your business and, and you shouldn't see it as a pure cost center. And, you know, kind of because, because we were just talking about how and we're taking Shein as an example or some of our client case studies where actually mindful strategic moves in the supply chain actually created additional value, created a competitive advantage, right? So not only is it a significant part of your business, but you should always be, and whether it's China fulfillment or anything else, really think about how your supply chain strategy can potentially provide an edge, you know, in your business. And actually that's how, I mean, that's part of what, what, what Amazon is doing right now, right? Like they invested in the ability to offer FBA and two-day prime to like, you know, most locations, right? You know, they invested massively, right? And that was a strategic move on their end. If Amazon has ever thought of 
their supply chain strategy and fulfillment network as just a cost center, they would not nearly be where they are today, right? So, you know, I that's agree. something that I want people to, to remember too. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, seeing any part of your business as just a cost center or just a problem to be solved as quickly as possible is, is nearly always a mistake, isn't it? Because as you say, everyone's got the same problems to solve. Everyone's got to move physical products around the world in some way. They're going to be some people, some robots, some machinery, some, you know, whatever cranes and ships, whatever. So really the competitive advantage that can come at any part of your supply chain, if you are willing to dive into being more mindful about it and, and tying that in with your finance strategy, for example, you know, holding less stock, then that can be a competitive advantage. And I love that kind of competitive advantage because A, it's kind of intelligent kind of way of doing it. It's not just, I'm going to make my widget a bit bigger than everyone else's or a bit stronger. I mean, that's too easy to copy. That's the, the, the thing I love about this kind of stuff is you can spend all day long using Jungle Scout, as I know many of the Chinese factories on the, the East Coast do. You know, all you know, as every Western seller does as well, or helium ten, and see the product and copy the product effectively in you know legal or illegal ways doesn't matter. But what is harder to reverse engineer is this kind of financial or fi fulfillment strategy, or you know, any supply chain strategy, because it's more hidden from the human eye, and most people don't bother doing any homework. You can have a competitive advantage that people don't copy for years because they don't know how you're doing it. And I think that's a super smart thing because mm -hmm. it's, it's a competitive advantage that is more likely to be sustained because people don't do their homework. So I, I'm a big fan of that. And uh, I think it's interesting that I think a lot of business owners evolve from being obsessed with marketing and, and the sort of front end stuff to getting more involved in the, the, you know, the less sexy, if you like, bits, supply chain management and the financial management. If you get that right, then other people can't copy that very easily. Anyway, yeah, hey, hey, uh, I would say on that point, actually, you know, I, I kind of came, came from the opposite direction. You know, I started in one of supposedly the sexier industries that you could be in. I, I, <laughs> I was in the Silicon Valley, you know, I was making Silicon. mobile games, you know, it was one of the sexiest things you could do out there. And you know what? It's actually kind of refreshing and it's nice to not be like competing with you know, some of the top companies, the top people in the world, you know? So boring is not a bad thing, right? Making money is a good thing, right? Like building a great business is a good thing. Doesn't have to be sexy, right? Like if you're trying to be sexy, you know, I, I don't know, you know, maybe you shouldn't be like focusing on building a business in the first place, right? But the goal is to build a business, to great, to build a great business, to make money, to 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 be profitable, and 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 I mean to you know create some value, obviously, but it doesn't have to be exciting. Yeah, and you make an excellent point. I, I mean, for me, the numbers that a business shows you are more exciting than the product in some ways. And you know, I'm not a product centered guy. I guess I'm a bit more of a nerd. I have a certain taste for numbers. I'm not saying I'm great at them, but maybe other people are product centered, but the business has to be a system of systems that includes all of that. Right. And I think if you think about creating a beautiful business and your supply chain is certainly a huge part of that, that's a different way of thinking, isn't it? And I guess that's what we're coming to. So look, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Dio. It's, it's much bigger than I thought it was going to be. Uh, you're a super smart chap and, and you know, very interesting intellectually as well. So, but let's come back to the basics. Ecom Ops, tell us what you do exactly and, and how that works for consumers if they choose to use it for our clients. We should. Yeah. So, you know, we've fulfilled orders today from China. If you want to check us out, just go to our website, ecomops.com. That's ecom with two M's, E-C-O-M-M-O-P-S.com. And, and actually, you know, just so our team knows where you're from, maybe just, just put in the comments that you're from this, you know, 10K collective, you know, from Michael. So my team knows kind of where you're coming from and pay extra attention as well. 
And really, so we do have a minimum. We do have a minimum order requirement of 500 orders per month. Uh, but close to that is totally fine as well. Uh, because we really, you know, part of us, efficient fulfillment strategy is, you know, consistency and volume as well. But feel free to reach out to us, give us some details of your product. We want to make sure that we can serve it correctly. We'll give you some pricing and, and then it would be as simple as if it works out, getting your factory to contact us and send their stock to us and we'll get started. That's good. And just to sort of check the details for the, for the detail merchants out there, like the 500 orders a month, presumably that wouldn't be just one product or from oh, China yeah. or one factory in China or? No, no, no. Just, uh, an overall requirement. And, you know, I'll be honest, you know, sometimes we, we have a lot of flexibility as well because we see things as more the potential to scale. Obviously we can't start from zero, but we have clients who come to us like, Hey, like, like my marketing is great, but my fulfillment sucks. You know, that's why we're not getting that many orders, but we're confident we can get, you know, hundreds of orders per day even. And it happens all the time. So feel free to talk to us. You know, if you have some confidence in, in your plan, then we're certainly happy to talk to you as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I would say also 500 orders a month is, is not a lot if that's overall orders. And yeah. let's face it, most people do make a lot of their stuff in China unless they happen to be in supplements or you know things that go on or in your skins or topicals, creams, whatever. Other than that, the majority of people still seem to make stuff in China. There's there's more interest in India. What I would say is also this makes the most of, of what China's amazingly good at, which is mass-produced stuff efficiently done and coordinating with each other. I and mean, that's just a, a Chinese strength. And to play to that strength fully makes sense. If you're going to have the, the downsides of sourcing in China, which is that China and the US seem to be on a bit of a war path. And for whatever reason, let's, yeah. let's cross our fingers that we don't go further that way, but there's already trade tariffs and you yeah. know, so you've got the downsides, but you might as well get the upsides, which is like the Chinese talking to other Chinese guys, just get stuff done quickly yeah. and efficiently like nobody else on the planet. And, you know, that's a wonderful thing to, to leverage, I think. So that's been great. I, I really enjoyed today's conversation. Are there any other questions or points that I should have asked you? No, I think that's good. I think we covered a lot, actually. I think we covered uh, more than I expected as well. So yeah, we did. <laughs> I've been reading too many business books recently. Obviously, I we covered a lot of the bigger uh -huh. picture stuff. But yeah, I, I just like to, I'd love to think that the people listening, if they go away and that the right kind of people that got a brand and are serious about growing it, really put together a mental map that, you know, uh, puts things in a context so it's not just oh well this guy sells you know has fulfillment from china no it doesn't sound good and then shut it down to really think it through and have a reason like okay that doesn't make sense but i've taken some lessons from that so that's what i always aspire to for our listeners must let you get back to creating your wonderful business just remain to say dayu from um ecom ops welcome i mean don't be welcome to the show let me redo that again i make sure you edit this bit Von, this is a test of my editor just to see if he's listening to the end of the show uh, just remains for me to say, Dayu Yang from Ecops. Oh, well, let me say that again. It just remains for me to say, Dayu Yang from Ecom Ops. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. A great place to have you here. Thank you for having me, Michael. If you would like resources and links and other help to do with today's episode, just go to amazingfba.com forward slash 461. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. 
I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.